We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. And away we go, episode 97 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Ronaldo win episode. Ronaldo win, underrated Redskin, had some good seasons, 2002 through 2005. It is Wednesday, July 7th, 2021, the day after game one of the 2021 NBA Finals. The Phoenix Suns, a 118-105 win over the Milwaukee Bucks on Tuesday night. But who are we kidding? Are the NBA Finals even close to as interesting as what's going on at ESPN right now? The Rachel Nichols, Maria Taylor situation. Have you been following this? A privately recorded conversation that's like a year old in which Nichols brings up Taylor being pushed by ESPN due to Taylor being black was leaked to the New York Times, Nichols, who, by the way, went to Churchill High School in Potomac, Maryland, gave this lame apology on her NBA show, The Jump. The show got canceled, at least for a day. Nichols has been removed as a sideline reporter for ESPN's coverage of the NBA Finals. And there's a widespread belief that the audio was leaked to the New York Times by Taylor's camp, so as to engender sympathy for Taylor and leverage for Taylor as her contract reportedly is coming up. And she reportedly wants Stephen A. Smith money, i.e. around $8 million per year in a time in which ESPN is laying off people. If only we could watch the drama behind the scenes at ESPN on TV. Now that would be ratings gold. 
spoiled rich people fighting with each other. You can't beat that. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Al Galdi podcast, which never has drama. This podcast is just me and my makeshift studio of pillows and blankets. So the only drama is if one of the pillows or blankets goes missing. Uh, We do, though, have constant drama to talk about regarding the Washington football team. Hopefully that'll change someday, but that day quite clearly has not yet come. This entire scenario with the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the Washington football team's workplace, the outcome of the investigation, the process by which the investigation was conducted, all of that remains odd, confusing, complicated. Pick your adjective. We pride ourselves here at the Al Galdi podcast on bringing you the brightest minds as guests. We're not interested in cliche dummy talk on this show. You can find that elsewhere. We want high IQ guests, experts, insiders, true influencers, big machers. And so I have for you as a special guest on the show, a legal expert to help us better understand the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Neil Mullen, he is a lawyer. He is a professor at George Mason's Law School, the Antonin Scalia Law School. He is a loyal listener of this podcast. Very smart guy. He'll be with us to address all of the questions that we've all had about this investigation. What should we make of there being no written report? What should we make of the NFL saying that, quote, Wilkinson was not specifically tasked with confirming or rejecting any particular allegation of inappropriate conduct, end quote? What should we make of Wilkinson herself? Is she a lackey for the NFL? As some have suggested, what should we make of this non-suspension suspension of Dan Snyder? All of those questions will be addressed with Neil coming up. I'll also discuss actual football regarding the Washington football team. I have some things that I want to say about Terry McLaurin. Next segment, I'm talking Nationals. A loss for them late night on Tuesday night. 7-4 the final at the San Diego Padres. Also now for the Nats, a major question who is the odd man out in the rotation with Eric Fetty back? I'll get into the Orioles as well as they won on Tuesday night. A 7-5 victory over the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Another good night for Cedric Mullins. What a season he's having. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the pod, if you would like for the power of the pod to work for your practice or your business as we approach the start of Washington football team training camp and essentially Washington football team season. Remember, football season doesn't start with week one of the regular season. Football season really starts with the start of training camp. We are going to have a ton of news day in and day out regarding the Washington football team to talk about on this podcast in just a few weeks here. Uh, Email from John Grandland. Speaking of sponsors, uh, yes, John G., the master of commission flex, as I've told you. Uh, He's a big Washington football team fan, and he has some thoughts on the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation and Dan Snyder. Writes John, has anyone mentioned that Snyder likely gives away more than $10 million a year to charity already? If he brings that number down a little, the $10 million going to whichever victim charity the NFL chooses for the fine will in effect have zero effect on his net worth. What a joke punishment from the NFL. That's a great point. I mean, you think about it, all Donnie Boy really has to do here is reduce the work of his Washington football charitable foundation by a few million dollars. Virtually nobody will notice, and that'll offset this $10 million fine 
within a few years. Also, think about this, and I'm not sure about the answer to this. If we have any accountants listening, you can let me know. But if Dan, and it's not Dan technically, it's the Washington football team. If the Washington football team writes the $10 million check to whichever charity or charities get selected here, is that not a potential write-off? Is that not potentially an event that can be used to benefit the Washington football team from a taxpaying perspective? Uh, Something to think about as well. But again, as I've been saying, Donnie Boy has to be laughing like crazy at all of this. He incredibly is emerging from all of the chaos of the last 12 months, stronger and more powerful than ever. It's nuts. But good point by John G. You see, this is the kind of insight that you get from John Grandlin of Real Broker. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandlin, aka John G, and ask him about what I keep telling you about, Commission Flex. Ron Rivera is trying to clean up the Washington football team's culture. He keeps telling us about Position Flex. Position Flex. Yes, exactly. There it is. Well, John Grandlin has commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same commission? If your house is going to sell in five minutes, you shouldn't have to pay the same commission to someone whose home is going to take a while to sell and require far more work from the real estate agent. This flat fee, no matter what thing, is ridiculous. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from. Ergo, Commission Flex, among the options, by the way, is selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free. Zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. He will sell your home guaranteed. That's right. He guarantees the sale of your home. Call John G. now. The phone number is 703 537-6747. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. Now, when you call him, make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure you ask him, hey, I want to hear more about what I heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, The Commission Flex. You can also visit John Grandlin online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And never forget, John Grandlin is the master of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. As you may remember, during the very early days of the Al Galdi podcast, as in just a few months ago, uh, when NFL free agency began, I referred to that initial week of free agency as late night with Ron Rivera, because over the course of three consecutive nights, we had major breaking 
Washington football team news. Late on Monday night, March 15th, the first day of the NFL's legal tampering period, we had multiple reports that Washington had agreed on a contract with free agent quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick. Late on Tuesday night, March 16th, the second day of the NFL's legal tampering period, we had multiple reports that Washington had agreed on a deal with free agent corner William Jackson III. And then on Wednesday night, March 17th, not necessarily late, but still in the evening, what was the first day of the NFL's new league year, we had multiple reports that Washington had agreed on a deal with free agent receiver Curtis Samuel. Well, we right now are in the midst of late night with the Nationals, a seven-game road trip out west, four games at the San Diego Padres, followed by three games at the San Francisco Giants. The first five games of the seven-game trip are late-night games. One of my mantras on the Al Galdi podcast is, I follow sports so you don't have to. Following sports is work. I do the work for you. So if you can't stay up for Nats Padres this week, no worries. I got you covered. And if you didn't stay up on Tuesday night, well, you probably made the right call because the Nats lost. A 7-4 loss at the Padres. Nats falling to 41-43. and on the season. Also on Tuesday night, the National League East leading New York Mets game with the Milwaukee Brewers postponed due to rain. The Philadelphia Phillies won at the Chicago Cubs 15-10. Our old pal Bryce Harper had five hits and four RBI, and the Atlanta Braves got walked off at the Pittsburgh Pirates 2-1. So as we speak here on this Wednesday morning, the Nationals are back to being in third place in the NL East, four and a half games behind the division-leading Mets. The Phillies now are in second, a half game ahead of the Nats, and the Nats are a half game ahead of the Braves. There was good news, though, for the Nats on Tuesday, and the good news involved the Nats getting two pitchers back from the 10-day injured list. The Nats on Tuesday reinstated starter Eric Fetty and reliever Kyle Finnegan from the 10-day IL. We'll get to Finnegan in a moment, but the bigger item is Fetty. So the Nats reinstating Fetty from the 10-day injured list. He'd been on that since June 27th, retroactive to June 24th, with a left oblique strain, and Fetty ended up starting on Tuesday night. Normally, a guy misses time, especially a starting pitcher. You see the guy have at least one minor league rehab outing. You didn't get that here with Eric Fetty. He started this game on Tuesday night, and while I thought that he was better than his final line indicated, it's not like he was great. Uh, Eric Fetty ultimately was charged with six runs in four and a third innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. He had just two strikeouts. And while he only issued one walk, he threw just 56 strikes versus 37 balls over 93 pitches. Now, you would say, well, he must have been rusty. I, I guess you have to say that, but Fetty did begin the outing well. Uh, so I think it's more like Fetty ran out of gas than it is that Fetty was ill-prepared to make this start. Uh, Fetty, over his first three innings, tossed three scoreless innings. So you liked a lot of what you were seeing from Eric Fetty. But Fetty then allowed three runs in the bottom of the fourth, during which he allowed each of the Padres' first three batters to reach base. A leadoff double by Manny Machado, a single by Eric Hosmer, and a three-run opposite field homer to right field by Will Myers. Fetty then was charged with three more runs in the bottom of the fifth, during which he recorded just one out. Fetty gave up a leadoff full count single to Trent Grisham, a one-out five-pitch walk of Jake Cronenworth, and a one-out RBI single by Manny Machado 
despite him having been down in the count at one point, one, two. The other two runs that were charged to Fetty in that inning scored with reliever Sam Clay pitching as Clay began his outing by giving up a one-out RBI single to Eric Hosmer and a one-out RBI sack fly to Will Myers. So like I said, I thought Fetty was better than the six runs and four in the third innings would suggest, but still was not great. I do wonder if he would have been better served by having made a minor league rehab outing. But these days with the Nationals, because of all the injuries, you know, you sort of have to take what you can get. And if a guy is ready to come off the IL and you feel like he can be decent or, you know, good enough for you uh, in terms of making a start, then you go ahead and go with that guy. And that was the hope with Fetty on Tuesday night. Now, the bigger question regarding Eric Fetty is what now for the Nats rotation? Because Eric Fetty now makes this six starting pitchers in a rotation that, in theory anyway, is designed to have five spots. So we know what the starting pitching situation for the Nats will be for the rest of this series at the Padres. Game three at San Diego, Wednesday night at 10-10, Patrick Corbin will start. Game four at San Diego, Thursday night at 9-10, Max Scherzer will start. Then what? Well, that is the question. You have a three-game series coming up at the Giants. Fetty could start game three at the Giants on Sunday on four days rest. If that's the way you go, and I think that's the way that you should go, because Eric Fetty overall has done a good job for the Nats this season, uh, is either Paolo Espino or John Lester going to be out of the Nats rotation? To say nothing, by the way, of what happens when Steven Strasburg eventually comes back, although who the heck knows when that's going to go down. But you have Espino and Lester, either guy being the likely odd man out, if in fact the Nats have an odd man out here. We'll see. Uh, You know, you could go with just a six-man rotation to close out the pre-All-Star break portion of the season. But again, eventually you're going to have to make a call here of who your guys are in this rotation. Let me make something clear. If we're doing this in a merit-based way, i.e. who stays in the rotation and who goes, has nothing to do with players' reputations, players' resumes, what outside people think of these players, then this isn't even a conversation. Espino stays and Lester goes. John Lester, over 13 starts this season, has an ERA of 534 and a whip of 163. John Lester, over his last three starts, has allowed 17 runs, 14 earned in 10 and two-thirds innings. Lester, as of games through Monday, had an ERA plus of 70 in 60 and two-thirds innings this season. ERA plus is ERA that's normalized based on a player's home ballpark and the overall offensive environment in the league. 100 is average. Anything below 100 is bad. Anything above 100 is good. Lester's ERA plus on the season as of games through Monday, 70. Espino, as of games through Monday, had an ERA plus of 152 in 40 innings this season. 152, 52% better than a league average pitcher has been Paolo Espino. And Espino, as of games through Monday, number two on the Nats pitching staff in wins above replacement per baseball reference, B-War, at 0.7 this season. Number one on the Nats pitching staff in B-War by far is Max Scherzer. But number two isn't, say, Brad Hand, isn't anybody else. Number two is Paolo Espino. How many teams would take their number two pitcher in terms of war out of the rotation? And yet that's what the Nats would be doing here if they take Espino 
out of the rotation. Now, of course, it wouldn't be that the Nats would like send Espino back to the minors. The Nats would put Espino back into that sort of all-purpose role where he's, you know, a reliever, he can be a long man, he can be a spot starter. And there is value in a guy who can do those things. But John Lester right now is getting shredded. His starts are borderline non-competitive. If this season is about winning, and clearly it is, the Nats are not a tanking team, the Nats are a win-now team, you forget about John Lester's postseason pedigree. You forget about John Lester being a highly respected player. You forget about John Lester potentially being a future Hall of Famer. John Lester's on a one-year contract with you. He just got here. He's not had a very good season. None of this is personal with John Lester. Maybe you come up with some phony baloney injury and you put John Lester on the 10-day injured list. But to me, if you're really trying to win and you're saying, okay, who is the better pitcher this season to be a part of our rotation? The answer is Paolo Espino, and it's not even a conversation. Uh, Regarding Kyle Finnegan, so the Nats reinstated Finnegan from the 10-day IL on Tuesday. He'd been on that since June 22nd, retroactive to June 21st with a left hamstring strain. Uh, Also on Tuesday, by the way, was the Nats optioning two relievers to AAA Rochester, Ryan Harper and Kyle Lobstein. Four Nats relievers ended up pitching in this 7-4 loss at the Padres late night on Tuesday night. Bullpen overall was good, although not as good as the line suggests. One run in three and two-thirds innings. Sam Clay got the final two outs in that Padres three-run fifth. But like I said, he did allow two inherited runners to score and gave up two singles in that fifth inning. But Finnegan did pitch, and he looked good, tossed a scoreless bottom of the sixth. Andres Machado did give up a run in the bottom of the seventh on a one-out double by Manny Machado and a two-out double by Will Myers. And then Jeffrey Rodriguez. We had a Jeffrey Rodriguez sighting late night on Tuesday night. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth in just his fourth appearance since the Nats selected his contract from AAA Rochester on June 12th. I'm not here to tell you that Jeffrey Rodriguez is some elite pitcher or anything like that, although it's not like he's been bad when he's pitched here. Two runs in nine innings, seven strikeouts over his four appearances with the Nationals over the last near full month. But it is just so bizarre that a Nationals team that is so lacking in depth, so lacking in, like we talked about on Tuesday's installment of the podcast, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, I hear you. Position flex. You need as many bench player options as possible. You have Jeffrey Rodriguez called up from AAA Rochester. He's barely pitching for you. Davey Martinez clearly does not trust Jeffrey Rodriguez, and yet he has stayed on the major league level for all this time. It's not like Jeffrey Rodriguez has been optioned back and forth between the Nationals and Rochester. No, Jeffrey Rodriguez, his contract from AAA Rochester was selected on June 12th. He's been with the Nats ever since. And yet on Tuesday night, he made just his fourth appearance over that time. I don't understand this at all. The roster management for the Nationals this season, I think, has left a lot to be desired. But anyway, Rodriguez did pitch on Tuesday night. I did want to note that. Uh, Offensively for the Nats, on Tuesday night. Some good, some not so good. Nats scored four runs on eight hits and five walks, went one of six with runners in scoring position. Rough night offensively for the Nats numbers, one, two, four, and eight batters. Alcides Escobar, the Nats starting second baseman at number one batter, came back down to earth for at least one game, 0 for 4 with a walk. Trey Turner, Nats starting shortstop number two batter, 0 for 5. Josh Bell, Nats starting first baseman number four batter, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. And Victor Robles, Nats starting center fielder, number eight batter, 0 for 4, with a strikeout. However, with Trey Turner and Victor Robles, you got some great defense on Tuesday night. Trey Turner, multiple impressive defensive plays on ground outs by Fernando Tatis Jr. 
and Manny Machado in the bottom of the first. Trey on the Tatis ground out for the first out, capably backhanded the ball while heading toward third base and then threw across his body, made a strong enough and accurate enough throw to get the speedy Tatis at first base, where Josh Bell, by the way, made a great pick. And then Trey on the Machado ground out for the third out, beautifully barehanded a chopper and then fired to first base in time to get Machado. And then with Robles, a spectacular diving backhanded catch in the left center field gap to rob Jake Cronenworth of a hit for the first out in the bottom of the seventh. So neither Turner nor Robles had a good night offensively, but each guy stood out defensively. Defense matters. A lot of people pay defense lip service, but don't really take it into account. You should. And uh, the Nats have been a very good defensive team this season. More evidence of that on display late night on Tuesday night. Now, two Nats who had good offensive nights did run themselves into some outs. Juan Soto uh, hit a home run on Tuesday night. He went two for four with a homer and a single as your national starting right fielder at number three batter. Top of the first, Soto, a two-out single, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Did a really nice job of hustling to leg out the hit. So this was an extreme shift that was on display by the Padres. Their third baseman, Machado, was playing in shallow right field, caught the grounder in shallow right in the shift. Soto had to hustle, but he hustled and he got to first base in time. So good job there by Soto. But he ended up getting picked off and caught trying to steal second base for the third out. Uh, He officially fell to five for 10 on stolen bases this season, but that was more pickoff than it was a caught stealing. But that was a brutal out made on the base paths by Juan Soto. But he made up for it with what he did in the top of the sixth inning, a one-out full count solo homer to left field, despite having been down in the count at one point, one, two. So Soto hit the single in the top of the first, despite having been down in that count at one point, oh, two. Soto hit the solo homer in the top of the six, despite having been down in that count at one point, one, two. The homer going a projected 388 feet per stat cast. And get this. So Soto now has 10 homers on the season. Nine of the 10 have been hit on the road. This makes no sense. It's not like Nationals Park is some notorious pitcher's park, and yet Juan Soto has just one home run at home on the year. Uh, Soto did strike out on six pitches with runners on first and second and two outs in the top of the seventh. But a good night offensively overall for Soto, and a good night offensively overall for Starling Castro, even though he too made a key out on the base path. So Castro, the Nats starting third baseman and number five batter, two for three, with two singles and a walk. He had a one-out single in the top of the second, despite having been down to the count of 1.12. But Castro, later in the inning, thrown out at home easily on a Jan Gomes one-out double. A brutal scenario of Bob Sendley-Henley sending Castro and Castro being out by a mile. Uh, Castro did have a leadoff single in the Nats three-run fifth, and Castro worked a two-out six-pitch walk in the top of the six. Now, the major offensive bright spots for the Nets. Jan Gomes, what a night for him. Starting catcher again. I mean, all this guy does right now is serve as an Nets starting catcher. You, you hope that this isn't taking a, an extreme toll on Gomes' body. I mean, you know, Jan Gomes is not 22, and uh, he's being asked to catch basically every day at this point. Uh, but Gomes is out there, and he reaches base four times on Tuesday night as the Nets' number six batter. Three for three with two doubles, a single, and a walk. Gomes had a one-out double to left field in the top of the second, a double in the Nats three-run fifth, a two-out five-pitch walk in the top of the sixth, and a two-out single in the top of the eighth. And then Josh Harrison, the Nats starting left fielder and number seven batter, one for three with a three-run homer 
and a walk. Harrison smashing a three-run homer to center field in the top of the fifth to tie the game at three. The homer going a projected 409 feet per stat cast and the homer, Harrison's first homer since May 22nd. Josh Harrison got off to such a great start this season. The numbers have since cratered. Good to see Josh finally hit another homer on Tuesday night. And man, the Nats have had some guys with some serious home run droughts this season. Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Victor Robles, Starling Castro, Josh Harrison. A whole lot of guys have dealt with power outages at various points this season, but good looking shot there by Josh on Tuesday night. He also worked a two-out six-pitch walk in the top of the eighth inning. And he almost had another homer because prior to that three-run homer, Josh made a loud out on a deep fly out to left field for the third out in the top of the second inning as the Padres left fielder Jerickson Profar made a leaping catch at the warning track. Well, like I said, game three at the Padres, Wednesday night at 10-10. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. He'll oppose Chris Paddock, who has an ERA of 456 over 15 starts this season. We will see what Patrick Corbin ends up providing. We last saw Corbin last Thursday night in that 6-2 rain-shortened five-inning loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park. Corbin in that game, six runs, five earned in four and two-thirds innings. Corbin has made 16 starts this season. He has an ERA of 556. He has a whip of 140. If John Lester wasn't doing as he is doing, there would be a conversation right now about whether Patrick Corbin should remain in the Nats rotation. But because Lester has really been struggling and because, let's be honest, Corbin is in year three of a six-year, $140 million contract, Patrick Corbin is going nowhere when it comes to his spot in that Nationals rotation. Well, a man who is deserving of the number one spot in any rotation is one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese. You might say he's the Max Scherzer of area doctors, the Jacob deGrom of area doctors. Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301-396-3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. All right, so there continues to be a lot of talk about the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the Washington football team's sexual harassment scandal, or as the statement from the NFL said, quote, the outcome of the workplace review of the Washington football team, end quote. The NFL on Thursday announcing that the Washington football team is paying $10 million, which is to be, quote, used to support organizations committed to character education, anti-bullying, healthy relationships, and related topics, end quote. And a lengthy statement put out by Dan Snyder on Thursday announced that Tanya Snyder, who was named co-CEO just two days earlier on Tuesday, is assuming responsibilities of CEO, while Donnie Boy will be concentrating his time, quote, during the next several months on developing a new stadium plan and other matters, end quote. What are we to make of the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation? What are we to make of the investigation itself? Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, a special legal analyst, Neil Mullen. He is a lawyer and professor at George Mason's Law School, the Antonin Scalia Law School. Neil is a loyal listener of this podcast, emails me a lot of great insight on the various legal happenings with the Washington football team, and boy, have there been many legal happenings with the Washington football team over the last year. And so I thought that it would be good to have Neil on the show to help us gain some insight into what has happened here with the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Neil, it's very nice to have you on. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm doing great. Appreciate you coming on very much. So uh, if you don't mind, just so we can get to know you better, what is your legal background? Okay. Um, I practiced labor and employment law for 35, 36 years. Retired in January of 2020 and am teaching now as an adjunct professor, as you said, at uh, the Mason Law School. So this is the the, the kind of investigation um, that Beth Wilkinson did was sort of the grist for my mill when I was practicing. It's something I've done many times. Great. Well, I'm anxious to get your perspective on all of this. So the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation has left us with more questions than answers. Let's start with this. The lack of a written report, even a summary of a report. All that we got is that statement from the NFL, and the statement was lengthy and did give us some stuff, but certainly not a ton of stuff. 
The overwhelming reaction to the lack of a written report has been that this was a means of suppressing the truth. But you emailed me, said that an oral report as opposed to a written report in a circumstance like this one is common. So as a legal expert, do you see anything wrong or like sinister with the lack of a written report? I don't. Um, I think that they may be um, entirely appropriate in some circumstances, and I can describe that for you a little bit. So so uh, first of all, I think that uh, as fans of the team or as sport fans generally or as members of the large community of Dan Snyder haters, um, the lack of a report is distinctly dissatisfying. We wanted to see something. We wanted there to be a public release. But I think we have to remember that um, for the vast majority of businesses, these kinds of investigations take place with some regularity. And the result, whether it's an oral report to a board of directors or to a CEO um, or a written report, never see the light of day. So, you know, we're seeing this as something unusual that, uh, you know, there's there's uh, something smells here. But the fact of the matter is that in the great run of cases, the result of the investigation is intended for internal rather than external um, um use. And so really what you got from the NFL, from Goodell, was a lot more detailed than you'd get if, you know, any one of the wonderful, many fabulous sponsors that you have for your podcast were doing this investigation, right? So I think we've got to start there. Um, I think that Beth Wilkinson had marching orders. She was to do, according to the release from the NFL, she was to do a thorough investigation and uh, uncover all of the facts that were relevant to the uh, allegedly toxic um, um, environment there. There was that one odd sentence about not being tasked to make specific findings as to individual instances, which we can talk about if you want. But the lawyer's obligation is to the client. In this case, the client started out as Dan Snyder and then became Roger Goodell, became the NFL. And so within the confines of the lawyer's ethical obligations, the lawyer is going to perform the work that the client asks. And quite often, the client will say, we want you to investigate and come back and report to us what you find. And at that point, we'll decide whether we want a written report. Sometimes a written report like that can be extremely handy in litigation to, you know, show that the company took the allegation seriously and turned over over every rock and then, you know, received a set of recommendations regarding discipline or remediation. But that's not always the case. And here we're Boy, all the work that Beth Wilkinson did proved what we all suspected, which is a long-standing, highly toxic environment and a management that wasn't particularly interested in hearing about any of that. A written report would do them absolutely no good. So it didn't surprise me at all that we didn't get one. I was actually kind of surprised that the NFL put something out that was as detailed as they did. That makes sense? It does. And it's good to get clarity on that because 
that's been a big thing out there. So you referenced the item that I wanted to get into with you next. The NFL in its statement saying that, quote, Wilkinson was not specifically tasked with confirming or rejecting any particular allegation of inappropriate conduct, end quote. What do you make of that? That despite all of these allegations being out there and all of this time that the Wilkinson investigation took, she was not tasked with actually trying to ascertain what really happened. Yeah, it was kind of odd. But what was odd to me was the fact that the sentences in the release, not the fact that she wasn't asked to make those sorts of individualized determinations. Note, Al, that it doesn't say she didn't make those factual determinations, and I suspect that she did, and that she made a great number of them. In some instances, a report like this, uh, you hire a lawyer to do an investigation to determine what happened on a specific instance. Uh, Someone comes forward, alleges that one of their peers or one of their supervisors engaged in uh, inappropriate conduct, um, and the firm goes outside to find someone who can actually determine what happened. And they'll have direct evidence, maybe not, maybe it's just he said, he said, she said, or there'll be circumstantial evidence. And the investigator would do the investigator's very best uh, uh, effort at determining what actually happened. This was not an investigation into any particular instance. It was an investigation into a many-year campaign of harassment, a toxic toxic environment that lasted over a course of years. And really, we knew that before Ms. Wilkinson got started, right? I mean, long before the report came out or the, the, the press release came out, all of the miscreants, the malefactors, were gone, right? So it wasn't a situation in which an employer is trying to decide, do we discipline this person or not? The person had already been disciplined. All of them had been gone. Uh, Goodell made a particular point of referencing that, that all of the folks who were responsible for creating the hostile environment were long gone. So it really wasn't all that germane for Wilkinson to make determinations as to each of the individual elements that made up this hostile environment, right? The fact that incident number 36 did or didn't happen wouldn't really have any material outcome or impact on the outcome in the investigation because there were so many incidences and so many bad actors that the weight of the report wouldn't change. What's weird to me is that they put that sentence in there, and I'm still puzzling over why they thought that that was a helpful thing to put in the NFL's press release. But finally, I'm quite confident that when Beth Wilkinson sat down with um, her client, the NFL, and gave the oral report, there were a wealth of facts, findings of fact about what actually happened, who did what to who. Um, Not always great for an employer to have a written record that sort of highlights all of those things, makes finding of facts on all those things, because it can come back to, to bite you. But I'm quite sure that those findings of fact were made. 
We're talking about the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the Washington football team's sexual harassment scandal with Neil Mullen. He is a lawyer and also a professor at George Mason's Law School. When it comes to the NFL having not specifically tasked Wilkinson with confirming or rejecting any particular allegation of inappropriate conduct, do you think this has to do with the allegations against Dan Snyder and the NFL perhaps not wanting to know the truth about what Dan did or did not do? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's really hard to say, Al. I will, I will say this, and I don't know uh, Beth Wilkinson personally, but I do know her professionally, and I have extraordinarily high regard for her. I suspect that if she had been told Dan Snyder is off limits, don't investigate his misconduct, if, if any, don't make any findings of fact regarding uh, things that he may have done, um, that she would have declined the representation. Um, I also don't think that the NFL um, um, would have been interested in remaining ignorant on that question. Okay. Um, that may be naive on my part. I would think that Goodell would want to know. If, if, if Snyder was actually pimping out the cheerleaders as one of the allocations made out, um, if I'm Goodell, I want to know that. Um, and maybe they thought by putting the sentence in there saying that she wasn't specifically tasked to make those kinds of individualized findings, they were hoping to head off um, press questions about what did she find about this, that, and the other thing. Um, they can simply fall back on that one sentence in the, in the press release. But again, Beth Wilkinson didn't investigate for a year, interview, what was it, 140 witnesses, 150 uh, witnesses, and failed to come to conclusions about what the actual facts were. Um, so um, it is a curious sentence. But what's more curious to me is the fact that the sentence is in the press release rather than that she wasn't specifically tasked to make findings of fact. Again, right. I, I, I've had cases where um, the client didn't actually say, and I want you to make specific findings of fact on the following nine things just because it was assumed that I was going to do an investigation and do my best to find out what actually happened. I'm glad to hear you say that you know Beth Wilkinson professionally. There has been, as you may know, criticism of Beth Wilkinson from some. The idea being, well, you know, she represented the NFL in the past. She did so in concussion litigation. She is, you could argue, a league-friendly lawyer and thus perhaps was willing to, shall we say, play ball in all of this and help with the NFL's potential efforts to have made all of this go away. Now, that's a very cynical way of viewing things. I understand that. But I would like to get your take on, is there any conflict of interest from a standpoint of she has represented the league in the past and now was asked to investigate one of the league's owners or not necessarily, in your opinion? I don't think so. Um my guess is that, um, um, you know, your former employer, the, the radio station, has had the same outside counsel for years and it's represented in a variety of different capacities. Um, so, you know, the NFL has used her previously and has found her legal work to be of high quality um, and therefore gave her the responsibility of doing something that was really a very delicate uh, sort of assignment. So it doesn't seem to me to be that there's anything untoward there, um, nor do I think there's any evidence to suggest that she cut corners 
um, left things unexamined in order to help out uh, Dan Snyder or the NFL. I don't believe that, um, which is not to say that there aren't lawyers who would do that, um, but um, she's her reputation is uh, sterling. And uh, I know that if somebody had asked me to do an investigation and um, tried to wall off various aspects, as you know, sort of the rumors have suggested, um, that's a representation that I would have declined. And I, I strongly suspect that Wilkinson would have done the same thing. Do you expect Beth Wilkinson at any point to speak publicly about this? Is she allowed to speak publicly about this? She's allowed to speak publicly about anything that her client allows her to speak publicly about. The attorney-client privilege attaches um, or belongs to the client. It doesn't belong to the lawyer. So the lawyer can't waive that privilege, can't go to the public and answer questions unless the client, in this case, Goodell, says it's okay for you to do so. I think that there is uh, that. The chances of that happening are approaching zero. Um, The fact that they released what they released on, you know, late Thursday afternoon before the 4th of July weekend suggests that this was all strategically planned to sort of minimize the blowback. There was going to be blowback. They knew there would be blowback. They knew all, they knew that all of the questions that you're asking and all of the rumors that have come out of this would be asked. But they have done everything that they could to minimize the blowback from this. And why Roger Goodell would authorize his lawyer to now have a discourse with the press about all of the things that were said orally that they didn't want to put in writing. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, it wouldn't make much sense. Not unless something major breaks, like, you know, new allegations, um, some sort of external proof uh, that something nefarious happened with respect to Snyder's own conduct. Um, I mean, we could hypothesize, we could, you know, invent scenarios where Goodell might feel compelled to push Beth Wilkinson in front of a bank of microphones and have her talk, but I think the chances are very, very low. Regarding the non-suspension suspension of Dan Snyder, yeah. and maybe it's not a suspension at all, but Tanya Snyder, right, who just got named co-CEO last Tuesday, is assuming responsibilities of CEO and overseeing all day-to-day team operations and representation of the club and all league activities. Dan will be concentrating his time, quote, during the next several months on developing a new stadium plan and other matters, end quote. What are your thoughts on the phrasing of all of this and on what all of this truly is? Well, um, first of all, it's a remarkable coincidence, don't you think, that she gets appointed on Tuesday? Yeah. So all of this was carefully orchestrated. um, And I guarantee you that the paragraph in that press release that talks about Snyder's role and, and his wife's role going forward was written, rewritten, edited, vetted by 12 different people before the press release was issued. Um, and, and the sensitivities here are highlighted by the fact that, I think it was, was it uh, uh, Lockheed Fora who said that Snyder needed approval to come back and the team came out and, and, and 
batted that away immediately. Um, so yeah, this was a matter of great sensitivity. And I'm quite sure that there were discussions between ownership at the team and the NFL about how that was all going to be couched. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, originally, uh, Wilkinson recommended a formal suspension or that that was the direction they were headed and then, uh, Snyder turned them around. But I do think that that was, that language was carefully massaged to, to do as, to bruise Mr. Snyder's ego as little as possible and yet send the signal that, you know, he's taking some measure of stock of this, his, his own conduct and is, you know, sort of serving a timeout. So do you think it's fair to call this like a pseudo suspension or not really? Yeah. I, you know, it's really hard to say. I, I don't think, I don't think, let's put it this way. Based on, um, this isn't based on my legal acumen or uh, training or in uh, anything I know about this particular investigation, but I think it's highly unlikely that Dan Snyder would have voluntarily agreed to publicly communicate that he was stepping away. That doesn't sound like the Dan Snyder that I've been reading about since he bought the team. No, it doesn't. Not so, at all. so to the extent that the press release says that he's stepping away, um, you know, I ask myself, is Dan Snyder the kind of guy who appears to be one given to self-reflection and self-improvement? I can't say that that's actually the man that I've come to know, you know, from afar. So my guess is he didn't want to do this. They told him that it was a good idea that he do this. And they agreed to make it this, you know, wishy-washy, semi-voluntary sort of thing. That's just a guess. I think that makes total sense. Final question, just kind of bottom lining this and looking at it from like 30,000 feet. This entire investigation, the outcome of it, etc. Does it strike you as having been on the up and up and that the NFL did genuinely want to arrive at the truth? Or does it strike you as the NFL kind of felt like it had to do something, wanted to minimize the attention, wanted to minimize the ultimate ramifications, and just tried to bury this as best as possible? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, And I suppose that um, um, my knowledge of and experience with Beth Wilkinson, both at her prior firm and at her current firm, uh, gives me confidence that the investigation investigation portion of this was on the up and up, that they didn't hamstring her, that they gave her the resources that she needed, that uh, they didn't wall off evidence, um, and they didn't try to use her as a tool to achieve a public relations goal. Now, once the work was done, and she reported to her client, her fiduciary duty to the client is completed unless they engage her in something further, right? She she was hired to do something consistent with the bounds of ethics. She did that investigation. She delivered the work product that they asked for. And so she's done. At that point, it becomes the NFL's responsibility to communicate to the public to the extent it desired to do so 
um, what happened and why. And there, I think it's pretty obvious that the release that we got was heavily massaged and managed and that the communication was more a product of the public relations department than the legal department at the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll never really know all of the details of the findings of the investigation. And I think that's probably how the NFL wants it. Neil Mullen, lawyer and also a professor at George Mason's Law School, the Antonin Scalia Law School. I really appreciate your time. This was very insightful. Uh, thank you so much and all the best to you. I'm really happy to be with you, Al. Talk to you soon, I hope. So I don't just want all of our Washington football team conversation right now to be about Dan Snyder and the Beth Wilkinson investigation and all of this non-football stuff. I do like talking football with you. I know many of you only want the football talk. We can't just only do the football talk with everything else going on with the team, but we still can do football talk. And so I'd like to do some of that with you here right now. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Mike P. Writes Mike P. Galdi, in the new episode of the PFF pod, so that would be the Pro Football Focus podcast, they were doing a game. Who would be the top five players you start your franchise with right now? They were looking at age, progression slash regression, skill set, etc. Sam, and he's talking here about Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus, multi-time guest on the Al Galdi podcast, with his fourth pick, took Terry McLaurin. But Sam then got interrupted by the idea that fans who would be voting on whose top five players were the best wouldn't vote for Sam's players because DK Metcalf is seen as a brighter star who is going to continue to grow and is more recognizable. So Sam switched to DK. Was this the right call to you? Maybe outside fans and media see what Terry did last year as his ceiling, that he is what he is, even though his overall production was really good, despite the lack of quality quarterback play. I think not having primetime games last season really hurt his value in the league. Not enough people saw him and what he did with no one at quarterback. I watched every game, and maybe DK had more ridiculous plays and was more of an end zone threat because of his size and athleticism. Terry McLaurin still was a very good receiver last year with four different quarterbacks and a first-year head coach with the team. I'm happy that Terry got recognized as a top young receiver with potential future growth by Sam, but I think I would have stayed with Terry and not chosen DK because even though DK may be better now to many, I don't think over the next 10 years DK will be so much better than Terry. Two different types of receivers, I get that, but I think Terry could have a more productive career than DK, my opinion. So I did not hear the installment of the podcast that you are referring to, but I will take your word on all of that. And I do think that this is an interesting topic. I love stuff like this, comparative analysis. And I would say a few things. DK Metcalf, of course, receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, is a freak. And he has been awesome so far in his career. Washington took McLaurin in the third round of the 2019 NFL Draft out of Ohio State. The Seahawks took Metcalf in the second round of the 2019 Draft 
out of Ole Miss. Neither guy was supposed to be great. McLaurin, as you likely remember, was viewed as a special teams ace and a great locker room guy, but not as a number one receiver. And with Metcalf, a lot of people thought that Metcalf was too raw and would never be much of an NFL receiver. Well, people have been loud wrong on both McLaurin and Metcalf. Each guy is a legit number one receiver. Each guy has put up big numbers over his first two NFL seasons. McLaurin and Metcalf, yes, are two different types of receivers. McLaurin is fast, but isn't nearly the physical freak that Metcalf is. Although, remember what happened in Washington's game against Seattle last season. Week 15, the Washington football team fell to 6-8 and eight with a 2015 loss to the Seahawks at FedEx Field. Alex Smith was inactive for this game due to his ahem, right calf injury that we now know wasn't exactly a right calf injury. And so Dwayne Haskins was Washington's starting quarterback. This was the return of old Wayne Wayne to QB1 status for the Washington football team last year. Dwayne making his first start since the 31-17 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field in week four. Uh, Dwayne, you may recall for the Seahawks game, wore a wristband with the plays on it. So Washington had Dwayne as its starting quarterback. The Seahawks, of course, had Russell Wilson as their starting quarterback. I know that raw stats aren't everything, but McLaurin put up better numbers than Metcalf did. McLaurin had seven receptions for 77 yards on 12 targets. Metcalf had five receptions for 43 yards on six targets. Washington actually did a nice job on Metcalf in this game. But here's the point that I want to make, and it's a point that Mike made in his email. Metcalf has had, as his quarterback over his first two seasons, Russell Wilson, who is tracking toward being a Pro Football Hall of Famer. McLaurin, over his first two seasons, has had a revolving door at quarterback, the likes of which few receivers ever have over a two-season stretch. You can compare the stats all you want. You can talk about who does what better all you want, but it's not an even playing field. Metcalf is being thrown to by Wilson. McLaurin has been thrown to by a bunch of misfits, okay? I mean, let's be honest. McLaurin, over his first two seasons with Washington, has caught passes from the following quarterbacks. Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, and Taylor Heineke. Zero stability at the quarterback position. While Metcalf has had the ultimate example of quarterback stability. Russell Wilson has never missed a game over his nine NFL seasons. It bothers me when I hear people say that like McLaurin is good, but he's not great. Or, yeah, McLaurin is good, but he's overvalued by Washington fans. He's not as good as Washington fans think that he is. McLaurin, if anything, is undervalued. Comparing players in sports, doing comparative analysis, is about environment as much as production. You can't just look at what a guy has done. You have to look at the environment in which he has done what he has done. A quarterback having a 65% completion rate in 1990 means a lot more than a quarterback having a 65% completion rate in 2021. Why? The game has changed. The rules have been modified. Offensive philosophies have evolved. The environments are different. Same thing when comparing two players in the same era. You have to look at the circumstances for each guy, the environment for each guy. DK Metcalf is a stud. There's no doubt about that. But Terry McLaurin, again, has caught passes from Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, and Taylor Heineke. And yet, despite that, McLaurin finished the 2020 regular season with 87 receptions 
for 1,118 yards and four touchdowns on 134 targets over 15 games. He became Washington's first 1,000-yard receiver in a season since Pierre Garçon and Deshaun Jackson each had 1,000-plus receiving yards in 2016. McLaurin became the first Washington receiver with at least 1,000 receiving yards over the team's first 13 games in a season since Pierre in 2013. McLaurin in the 2020 regular season had just three drops per pro football focus. McLaurin in the 2020 regular season ranked number 10 in the NFL in yards after catch per ESPN at 490. Now think about that for a moment. McLaurin finished the regular season with 1,118 yards. 490 of the 1,118 yards were yak, were yards after the catch. Closing in on 50% of McLaurin's receiving yardage was yardage that he himself generated via yak. Not many receivers can say something like that. And McLaurin, over his first two NFL regular seasons, has 2,037 receiving yards, joins Gary Clark as the only receivers in Washington history to amass at least 2,000 receiving yards through the players' first two seasons with the team. And oh, by the way, McLaurin has yet to have played with a true stud number two receiver. Hopefully that's about to change with Curtis Samuel and or other guys on Washington. But how much better might McLaurin's numbers be if he had a legit number two playing with him over these last two seasons? Metcalf has had Tyler Lockett. McLaurin has had who? Steven Sims in 2019? Maybe Cam Sims as last season went on? I just mentioned Gary Clark. He played with Art Monk and Ricky Sanders. Who is McLaurin? been playing with? Where is McLaurin's Art Monk? Where is McLaurin's Ricky Sanders? As Ronald Reagan once said, where's Ricky Sanders? Where's Ricky Sanders? Yes, exactly. Where's Ricky Sanders? Where's Ricky Sanders? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That is a classic clip, by the way. February 3rd, 1988, President Reagan congratulating the Redskins on the South Lawn at the White House for having won Super Bowl XXII. It's not just what Terry McLaurin has done. It's the environment in which he has done what he has done. He is a legit top 10 receiver in the NFL. All right, well, we had a win for the Orioles on Tuesday night. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, they were. A 7-5 win over the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Game 1 of a three-game series and a six-game homestand. O's improved to an American League worst at 28-57 and with an AL worst run differential of minus 112. It has been a terrible run lately for the O's in terms of starting pitching. Heck, it has been a mostly terrible last few decades for the O's in terms of starting pitching, but the O's did get a good outing from their starter on Tuesday night. Spencer Watkins, good, in his first major league start. Spencer who? Exactly. The O's on June 30th selected the contract of Watkins from AAA Norfolk. Watkins was taken by the Detroit Tigers in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. This is where the O's are at, starting a guy who was taken in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. He was making his first major league start. He was appearing in just his second major league game, but he did a nice job. One run 
in five innings. Also, the O's hit three two-run homers. Cedric Mullins, Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, the Orioles lone all-star, a man who should be starting in the all-star game, but is not. He smashed a first pitch two-run homer to right field in the Orioles five-run fifth, also drew a walk. Anthony Santander was the Orioles starting right fielder and number five batter. He blasted a one-out two-run homer on a bomb to right field in that Orioles five-run fifth, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. This was a Utah street homer, the homer going a projected 431 feet per stat cast, landed on Utah street, becoming just the 50th homer by an Oriole to land on Utah street. You know, for a while, we were talking about Santander a lot. He caught fire for a few weeks back in May. But Santander had a woeful June. He, in the month of June, had a batting average of just 216, an on-base percentage of just 278, and a slugging percentage of just 341. So hopefully this homer on Tuesday night gets Santander going. Uh, Also, the ex-national, Pedro Severino, he hit a two-run homer as well. Game two for the O's against the Blue Jays Wednesday night at 7.05. My man, Matt Harvey, versus Hyun Jin Ryu. Harvey has been better over his last two starts. 5-2 win at the Houston Astros last Wednesday night. Two runs in four into third innings. 6-5, 10-inning win over the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo on June 25th. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. No, he's not exactly in the midst of a Cy Young candidacy here, but he has been passable over these last two outings. Harvey, prior to these last two starts, had allowed 40 earned runs in 27 and a third innings over his previous eight starts. So we shall see if the Harvey resurgence continues. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Thursday's installment of the podcast, a special topic, Ron Rivera and Jason Wright. Are they the guys who can truly fix the culture of the Washington football team. I have a lot to say about that. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Where's Ricky Sanders? Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details.